Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. He is risen. I want to say thank you to our musicians, especially this morning. I feel very prepared by your leadership, so thank you very much. Not because of my preparation, but because of your encouragement this morning. We come now to hear from God's holy word. We have three readings prepared this Easter morning that speak and pertain to the resurrection. The first is a prophecy from the Old Testament from the prophet Hosea. Jesus is said to have, by Paul to have been raised according to the scriptures. And that is, in his view, the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is one of those Old Testament passages that we're going to read today that speak anticipating the resurrection of our Lord. This is Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Come, let us return to the Lord For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Our second reading this morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Here, Paul is a long chapter about the resurrection, and this section we're going to read is where Paul talks about anticipating what the resurrection means for us, for you and us, and the glorious future that we look forward to as we trust in Christ. This is starting at verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, our gospel reading this morning is from Luke's account of our Lord's burial and the discovery of his empty tomb. This is Luke 23, verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth 
and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock, which no one had ever lain, where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're looking at Luke's account of the resurrection this morning. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we're sticking with Luke, the author of Acts. Acts is a sequel to his gospel. It's the only gospel account with a sequel. And so it's like we're rewinding the tape about 25 years for where we've been situated in the book of Acts to events that completely undergird and give that book its, uh, its energy and its meaning. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and everything that follows in the book of Acts and subsequent history would have no purpose and make no sense at all. We're going to look at this today, and I'm going to try to just draw out three simple points, hopefully simple. The first one is that Jesus died and was buried. The second is Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. And the third, that is not nonsense. It is the best ever news. Point one, Jesus died and was buried. At the end of chapter three, we have an account of how Jesus came to be buried in a tomb. He was buried, put there by a a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a town of the Jews. This is the only time that this man Joseph appears in the Bible. He's in all four gospels right at this same point doing the same thing. This is his thing. We discern from what we learn in these accounts of him that he was up to this point a disciple of Jesus in secret. He was too ashamed or too afraid or timid to own his faith publicly. That means he's like Nicodemus who had come to Jesus by night back in John 3 to inquire of Jesus, another secret disciple. And interestingly, Nicodemus joins Joseph. We learn from John that Nicodemus joins and cooperates with Joseph in burying Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So a lot of disciples fled (laughs) from Jesus um, at the time of his resurrection, but it caused these two to come out into the light and gave them courage 
They're, they were motivated out of love for the Lord to do something right by his body. Joseph was a member of the Jewish council, the very group that, that the night before had condemned, unlawfully condemned Jesus to death. But Luke wants, he points out that, that this man, Joseph, was nevertheless a good and a righteous man. We see that in verse 50. A man who had not consented or gone along with the council's uh, decisions regarding Jesus. So he had been, not been in favor and probably had absented himself from the whole undertaking. He was described as a man waiting for the kingdom of God. So he had in him a hope of the Messiah that was real and true. It reminds me of Simeon at the beginning of Luke, a man who had been hoping for the consolation, looking for the consolation and peace of Israel. And both of these men believed they had found the answer to their hopes in Jesus. At great personal risk and probably great personal expense, this man Joseph goes to Pilate, the Roman governor, and asks for the body of Jesus so he can bury him. Jesus has died. They confirm this, and Pilate grants Joseph his request, and he proceeds to take Jesus' body down from the cross, wraps it in a linen cloth, and lays him in a fresh tomb cut into the rock. That's verse 53. Now, this Joseph guy, we don't have a lot to go on, but we have enough to, to, to indicate that this is a, he's a really interesting character, and be fun to talk about him. But I want to just step back from the details for a second and observe that this is here. These accounts of Jesus' burial are here for a purpose to t- teach us something, uh, first and foremost, about Jesus. And that is that he was buried. He was buried. Paul mentions in his letter to the Corinthians that he, there's like four things that are of first importance, most important things. The fact that Jesus was buried is number two on the list out of four. Most essential, first important things. What is it, what's important about the fact that Jesus was buried? Well, f- accounts of Jesus' burial serve to reinforce the truth that he really died. We can say that. This helps confirm that he really died. We say in the creed that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He was really, really dead. Calvin writes in his comments that one reason for God wishing his son to be buried was to give better testimony that he had died a real death. Jesus really died, and his burial helps confirm that, but it says something yet more. Jesus' burial highlights and adds emphasis to the significance of his death, what it meant. By his burial, Jesus more, even more completely identifies with and and assumes in his life and in his death and in his burial the curse of sin and death. He completely identifies with it in the fact that he is buried. The curse, death is a curse. Lots of voices today that are saying otherwise, trying to convince you otherwise, that death is somehow a natural process. Well, I suppose in a sense it's a natural process, but only because something's broken about the world. It's not natural in the sense that it is not part of the original or ideal state of nature. There was a time when it was not. There was a world in which it was not prior to sin. Death was added to this world later as a result, as a judgment for sin, from Adam's sin. Adam had one rule to abide by. 
He had looked before him and he had the prospect open to him of, of eternal life on earth. He had one rule, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what happened, he ate. And by eating, he plunged all this world into sin and brought upon himself the curse. God said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, don't, Adam, don't eat of it, because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And by eating, he brought death into the world. Death for himself, death for his wife, death for his sons, death for all his descendants, death for you and me. We, born into this world, are born to die. And that is a function of a curse. A curse that has come upon us because of Adam's sin, which we have inherited. We've inherited his curse. And because we've added to that the guilt of Adam by our own sin. You're going to die. Happy Easter. You're going to die. And you're going to die because you're under a curse. And today we're here celebrating the fact, rejoicing in the fact, hoping in the fact that Jesus came and he took upon himself and bore our curse. He submitted himself undeservedly. He had, there was no reason, there's no, there was no guilt in Jesus. None that God can find, none that man could find. There was no guilt in Jesus and he voluntarily submitted himself to the curse of sin and death. On the cross, as he bled out and died, and in his burial, we see this even more fully expressed. We, his burial shows that he took, he took this to the utmost, to the fullest. He bore the curse to the full by going into the ground. He submitted to the curse fully. Matthew Henry says, Jesus must be brought not only to death, but to the dust of death. According to the sentence of, in, that God pronounced to Adam, to dust you shall return. Now, Jesus' body, Jesus had been promised in the Psalms, it promised him that he would not undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So Jesus was not, because of the promise of God, going to decay. But God willed for him to be buried to show how much he stood in our place. He went into the ground as a symbol of decay. When you die, your body will decay and rot. And we put it into the ground as a symbol of that and recognition of that. But Jesus went there too. And that shows that he took upon himself our curse. Point number two, Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. This is established for us by the first eight verses of chapter 24, which gives an account of his resurrection. It's one of four such accounts in the Bible. Each gospel has its account of these things. Luke's account tells how a group of women disciples of his from Galilee came to the tomb where Jesus was laid in order to anoint his body after he was laid there. That's verse 1. Apparently they didn't have time to get that work done 
on the day that he was buried because it was close to sundown the day before the Sabbath. It was a preparation day for observing the Sabbath rest. And Joseph barely had time to get Jesus in the ground before that Sabbath began. But, so the women are only able to observe where he was laid. They go home, prepare spices and their ointments for anointing his body. And they come back at the, early, the next earliest possible moment, which is Sunday morning after the Sabbath is completed. They don't find what they're looking for when they get there. They find the tomb open, and that's promising. They're probably wondering on the way, how are we going to get inside? We, we need to get, gain access. Maybe the soldiers will help us get in. But they find that it's open. That's promising. They go in, but they find it empty. And that's perplexing. They don't know what to make of this. They're, they should have understood. Uh, one commentator says they shouldn't have even bothered to prepare their spices knowing what Jesus had told them and prepared them to understand and to believe. But here they come, um, and there seems to be, among the disciples at this time, absolutely no expectation of a resurrection happening. They are, they are simply trying to do right by their, the one that they love and care for his body. They come, they find it empty, they are perplexed and bewildered. And suddenly, an amazing thing happens. Suddenly, as they're puzzling over this mystery, there, there's a, out of nowhere, there's these men in dazzling clothing. <laughs> Dazzling's always a hilarious word to me. But there they are in dazzling clothes. He just mentions their remarkable attire here. Later in the chapter, he, he t- refers to them as angels. The women were terrified at the sight of them, which is always the, almost always the response of people who encounter divine beings like angels in the scriptures. And the angels are normally in a position of having to say, no, 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 don't worry, don't be afraid, I bring good news, and that they bring good news here. The angels preface their news with a question. They say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And they go on to explain clearly what has happened to Jesus. He is not here. He has risen. Remember, they go on to say, remember, this is just like he told you, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Verses 6 and 7. Ah, they remember. They remember his words. And I think this is Luke's and, and they go home and they, they tell people about it. This is their, the sign, Luke's sign, that they have believed, they understand, have accepted that this is so. That right there is how Scripture attests to the resurrection of the dead. I don't know if you've stopped to think about it, but that's, that's it. <laughs> Nobody in the Bible saw it happen. Nobody was there. If we were making the movie, this is like, you, no, no movie maker would ever leave out that, that critical moment of the, the reviving, the first breath, you know, from deadness. We don't, nobody saw that. Nobody knows what it's like. It's a mystery. God has hidden it. What we have is this. Nobody is expecting it to happen. They come to show their respects, pay their respects to the, to the Lord in his death. They find the tomb empty. This group of women goes, uh, the angels appear to them and explain what it is, what's happened. They accept it. They go back and tell others. They don't accept it. Jesus starts to appear to them over a period of 40 days, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in groups, sometimes large groups. He continues to teach them and to assure them that he's real. 
This results in a firm and settled conviction that Jesus' resurrection has happened, that he has risen from the dead, just as he said. And that's it. In Acts 1, there's a group of disciples, so in, in the sequel to the Gospels, there, in Acts 1, there's a group, a large group of disciples that have gathered in Galilee by Jesus' command, 40 days after the resurrection, and the risen Jesus appears to them there. He lays out their mission for them to evangelize the world and spread the news of his resurrection to the whole world. He promises to empower them for that mission by pouring out his Holy Spirit, and he ascends into the sky, and the clouds receive him out of their sight. These are some of the facts that we have from the witness of Scripture. Paul and the apostolic writers in their letters, they go on to explain um, what all of this means, what's happening. What does it mean that Jesus was, was, uh, disappeared into the clouds? What's going on there and what does it do for us? Well, they tell us that Jesus was returning to his father. He had come from his father to do his father's work. He had finished the work. He's going back to the father and returning there. Why has he gone there? Well, he's alive. He's living there. He is there doing many, many things. He's there praying for his people, advocating for them before his father. He is ruling his church and the world by his spirit. He's, given, he's through his, the ministry of his, his the spirit-filled ministry of his church. He is converting, changing, transforming, unbelieving hearts and minds. Men, women, boys, girls all over the world. And he is waiting for a day that the Father has chosen for him and appointed for him to come back and judge the world in righteousness. What will he do on that day? Well, they also tell us that. On that day, he will return in power and great glory. And with a shout and the blast of a trumpet, he will raise the dead. He will raise the righteous. He will raise the righteous to a resurrection of life, it says a resurrection of life. You know, the wicked will also be resurrected, but to a resurrection, it says, of judgment. The righteous to a resurrection of life and the wicked to a resurrection of judgment in hell. He will remake the heavens and the earth, removing all wickedness and vestiges of the curse of death. He will wipe away every tear from, the, from our eyes. And there will no, the last enemy that will be put to death and overcome by the Lord is death itself. There will no longer be any curse of death. He will remove it entirely. Can you even imagine a world without death? Without, I mean, decay, breaking, dying, going away, loss. None of these things. A world without those things. We can't even imagine it. We're so accustomed. It's in some ways even inured to death. Those, that's, the resurrection is one of those basic things that Paul says are of first importance when he's writing to so Jesus' burial and his resurrection on the third day are among those four things that are of utmost importance. And we could talk endlessly about what scripture says it means. But those are some of the basic facts and they're put out there just like that, pretty much in the scriptures. 
and we have to decide what we make of them. We have to make up our minds whether we will accept these things as true or whether we will be unbelieving. Do you accept Scripture's testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead? Thank you, Joe. If so, how precious is that to you? The third point this morning is Jesus' resurrection is either nonsense or it is the best ever news. When the women returned from the tomb reporting that Jesus was raised, Luke records that the apostles thought that they had lost their minds. It says in verse 11, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. You know, Jesus, both Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead appear to be foolish teachings or claims. Paul points this out about the cross itself. He, he's a very experienced preacher of the gospel. He's telling people about the death of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, several times he says, this is foolishness <laughs> to those who don't believe. There's nothing about this that adds up or seems to make sense or seems worthy of serious consideration or trust. To those who are unbelieving, it's foolishness. To many Gentiles I've preached to, this is just foolish talk. I've observed this. The word of the cross, he says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. What is it to us who believe? He says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So is it foolishness or is it power? What about his resurrection? Are you like the apostles who, when they heard that, it, that the Jesus has been raised from the dead, that the angels had told the women this, and, and they're hearing from the women, are you like the apostles who think, this is just silly talk. These women are just, you know, like caught up. They just want this so bad. They see the temp, that Jesus has been taken away somewhere, and they're just ready to believe anything. Are you a skeptic? Are you unbelieving? You know, the unbelief of the apostles here at the beginning is actually one evidence of the trustworthiness of this account. Have you ever thought about that? Scripture records the embarrassing facts, the sins, and the failures of its heroes, of its great men. And this is one evidence of the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. The unbelief of the apostles is one of the strongest indirect evidences that Jesus rose from the dead. If the disciples were at first so backward to believe our Lord's resurrection and were at last so thoroughly persuaded of its truth that they preached it everywhere, Christ must have risen indeed. Peter, it seems, was at least curious enough to run and see for himself. And he goes and he's stoop, stooping into the, to the tomb. He notices that the body is gone and he goes home marveling at what had happened. So he's convinced. The other apostles come in time to believe as Jesus appears to them, eats food with them, teaches them. Thomas the doubter is the last to be won over. Remember him? 
In John 20, verse 25, Thomas says, he's, you know, with, with the other disciples, they're all on board, and Thomas is like, he's the holdout, and he says, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to a group of them where Thomas is in the midst, and he says, Thomas, reach with your finger here, see my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answers and said to him, my Lord and my God. So Thomas too is won over and convinced. But what was Jesus' response to Thomas? You remember? It's about you. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. (laughs) Have you seen the Lord Jesus with your eyes? Never once. What do you have? You have the facts as I've laid them out, basically. That's what you have. That's I've kind of just summarized the data in Scripture. You have the testimony of these men. That's what you have. The Spirit-empowered testimony. They took this conviction of theirs into all the world, and they have written it down, and God has preserved the record of it. And he has even brought it to you and me here in Bloomington, Indiana, And he sets it before us and he appoints a man to stand up and proclaim it. And you have before you the question, do I believe it or do I reject it? Is it foolishness or is it power? Is it life from the dead or is it just a bunch of nonsense? Which is it? You know, if this is not true, then absolutely nothing that we're doing here makes any kind of sense. (laughs) Nothing about the Christian life adds up. The Apostle Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, listen guys, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, If we're just going to die and there's nothing after, we need to get our life in now. And again, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of of all men most to be pitied. (laughs) Because we are voluntarily opting out of so many fun things (laughs) in order to follow the teachings and the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are deferring gratification. That is what a Christian is. It, it is all, the Christian life is about deferred gratification. Now, it has many joys and many gratifying things about it. Some of the most truly gratifying things come in this life by obedience to Jesus. But we do have to say no to our flesh. We do have to say no an awful lot. We do have to guard ourselves and absent ourselves and deny ourselves many 
fleeting, momentary pleasures and appetites. We have to say no to our lusts. And that's hard work. It's very hard work. And it only makes sense if there's a reward for it. If, if we've hoped in Jesus in this life only, and only for now, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul goes on to say this, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Uh, Jesus, a, a, a dying Savior, is no good apart from a, one who has died and risen again, who lives to stand. He brings his sacrifice before God and represents you there forever. So if the resurrection has not happened, if it's just a bunch of nonsense, if it's foolishness to you, then it's no help to you. Paul goes on to say, but now Christ has been raised. And this reality makes all the difference. This is the best news ever. Why is it good news? Why is the resurrection good news? You know, you and I have absolutely no power over death. We spend an awful lot of our lives not thinking, intentionally not thinking about death. But do you know, again, happy Easter, you're going to die. You are going to die. Every one of you, look to your left, look to your right. Everybody in this room is going to die. I'm going to die, you're going to die. Some of us sooner than we think, all of us soon. All flesh is like grass. Springs up in the morning, the sun comes out, burns it away. Life is fleeting. You're going to die, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. Nothing you can do to stave it off. You're going to die. Now admit that, that that's really scary. That's really scary. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel raised his hand. You know, a lot of us really just don't think about it, are unwilling to think about it, do our utmost to avoid thinking about it or observing it. We do this with funerals. Have you noticed? Nobody goes to funerals anymore. We don't even have, we don't call them funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. We have all kinds of schemes and ways of hiding from death. But there's nothing you can do. There's no hiding from it. It's coming for you. Everybody here is going to die. Everybody you love and know is going to die. You know, it's the fear of death that Satan uses to hold us captive. The scripture says this. In Hebrews 2, 15. I just want to read it to you. Hebrews 2.15. Listen to this. This speaks both about this power of Satan through the fear of death and about Jesus' triumph over it. 
Verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Two things about that. One is Satan holds people in slavery and bondage through the fear of death. Are you afraid to die? Jesus came to deliver us from that fear. And to deliver us from the bondage to Satan who holds us in slavery to our lusts and to our idols and to himself through that fear. Why is death so scary and the fear of it such a powerful force? Well, we all know that there is something worse than death, behind death. Death is mysterious. Any sort of change like that, and certainly any sort of change that's so painful, most usually to undergo and go through, is a scary thing in of itself. But we all know deeply in our bones that behind it lies something scarier accountability accountability we it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment we must all stand before god and give an account for the deeds done in the body whether good or bad and we know that we suppress the truth of it we don't like to think about it but that is what gives death its power and its hold over you. Jesus came to deliver you from that second death, the death of judgment, where you stand before God and he points out all of your sins, every last one of them. He shows, them how, he shows you how awful they are and he rises up in his holy anger and he punishes you eternally in hell. Jesus came, and he died, and he was buried to bear the curse and the penalty for our sin. And Jesus was resurrected so that he could bring that sacrifice to the Father and so that he could represent you forever And so that he could demonstrate to you and to all the world that he, that death has no hold on him or on anybody who is under his keeping. Listen to this. When you die and you're going to die, you want Jesus with you. (laughs) Okay? When you die and you're going to die, you want Jesus with you. Why? He knows the way. He's been through it. Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Jesus knows the way. He will lead you through it. He's been there. And he has the, he has the, he has the mastery over it. He holds the keys to the doors to let you through to the other side 
in glory and in life. Listen to this. This is what Jesus says in Revelation. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. You want Jesus with you when you come to die. And you want Jesus for you. You want Jesus for you on that day. Imagine standing before God in all his righteous, holy glory. And your sinfulness exposed. Don't you want Jesus there as your advocate? Pleading for you? Everybody needs a good lawyer in court. Have you ever been to court? Would anybody know what to do without a good lawyer? <laughs> it's intimidating. It's scary. And that's just a li- and, and it's, you know, it's got its procedures and its ways. And you're, you know, you're, you're, this is new to you. Without a good lawyer, we'd be sunk in court. This is the great court. And Jesus is the great advocate for sinners. And he, t- he bears the marks of his sacrifice before God, and he pleads the cause of his people. And he says, this one's with me. This one I paid for. This one's good. Because he's with me. You want Jesus to be with you, and you want him to be for you. And that is only possible if you will believe that he was raised. Do you believe it? Is it precious to you? It is to me as well. And you know why? God allowed me to believe it. It has been so clear to me this morning as I've just been thinking about why am I here? Why do I have any confidence to say these things? I remember back just 20 years now, but just 20 years in my life ago, I did not believe these things. And only God is able to grant us that saving faith in Jesus. But those who have this faith, for those who believe in Jesus, this is one of the most great and precious truths. And this is one of the great and most precious days. Because this is where we put all our hopes. This is what we're banking on. And if it is not true, we are to be pitied. But it is true. And I believe it. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill us all up with this faith and confidence that you have risen from the dead and that you live still and forever and that we, though we die, will be raised to a resurrection of life evermore through you and through trust in you. Lord, would you deeply plant, strengthen and establish and grow confident trust 
in your resurrection in our hearts. And I pray that we would live out of that belief every day and that we would fully fix our eyes on glory and on your eternal kingdom and that we would run the race with endurance, pursuing our place there through faith, trusting in your goodness, relying entirely on your mercy. God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.